We'll start off with a hymn inspired by St Francis of Assisi. It's the choir of St George's Chapel, Windsor, and all creatures of our God and King. And here we heard All Creatures of Our God and King, sung by the choir of St George's Chapel, Windsor. Now over to David to tell us about what's coming next. There's a podcast about the Bible called The Outspoken Bible. If you Google Podbean, then you can find this podcast. The host is Fiona Stewart, and she talks to Jen Robertson of the Scottish Bible Society, and also Neil Glover, Minister of Aberfeldy Church. The topic this week is climate and climate change. What about the, the climate crisis? What about the environmental situation we're in currently? I mean, this is a hot topic. Literally. A hot Literally to- a hot <laughs> topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, How do we answer that if if we're saying, well, God's God's not yeah. a watchmaker; he's actually yeah. fundamentally yeah. at work. Is he? So I think there's something, Jen. You were very interesting because I think you get you became quite passionate earlier when we were thinking earlier today about. Christians who you encounter who kind of go, we've well, got to save the planet, and, and become very kind of angry and almost giving you a ticking <laughs> off for, I think you were talking about cow's milk and plastic at one point. And <laughs> not a good combination. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> clearly not, yeah. Um, and th- there's almost a certain sense of which we we park the God stuff and then we yeah. become eco-warriors. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there's, a, there's something in all these things we've read about... God is the God of all this stuff, and that's us. And, he, and He's put us in a very specific role, yeah. as, hasn't He? From we use the word stewards, yeah, in so, that, so that we are here to care. And maybe our focus should be more on encouraging each other to be more godlike, <laughs> you know, to be the creative, caring people that He designs to be. So we're encouraging each other to look out for the world. In our, I mean, we are we are just individuals, but it's individuals that make a difference, isn't it? And yeah. the decisions we make, but not to be berated and shouted at, because that, well, for me, that just makes me kind of, I feel a bit full of terror that I've yeah. got it wrong. Yeah. Rather than saying, you know, who is this God that made the world? What does He want the world to be like? What's the big story of the world? So What's going to happen? What's the end? What's the end of the story? So, is there something about the 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 challenge that the the climate faces at the moment? So. Even we're ceasing to use the word global warming, and we're now yeah. talking about global heating because the, the level of of heat that's that's staying in the atmosphere that does seem a bit doomed at times. Mm-hmm. Like even yeah. under the best scenario, um, we we still probably uh, the the ocean levels are going to rise and uh, the the icebergs are, are going to melt. The polar ice caps going to melt. But if you suddenly sense, well, wait a minute, maybe if we're doing this with God, mm-hmm. then we've forgotten about God. So that's yeah. Fine. That's why it's so fearful, isn't it? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. without God, the planet is it. Now, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying, oh, we're just for. No, you, people, mm-hmm. Christians have said this down through the mm-hmm. centuries, haven't they? We don't need to really worry about material things or worry about the yeah. planet. We'll just do what God wants and God will, you know, if it all blows up, well, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But if the planet is all there is and there is no God and there's nothing beyond us, then yes, we, we should be incredibly fearful. And but it's actually telling us that we're. we're we're partners God's with God. God's hands are in this, and even though we don't understand what's going on, he's so, here with us. And I think there's also a, a thing as well that we are participating in the creation being enjoyed by God. Mm. You get the, one of the passages we looked at, Psalm 65, talks about the hills with joy. Yeah. Now, if the hills have been stripped yes, of their forests, mm-hmm. then that joy is diminished. Yeah. But if those hills are being preserved and looked yeah. after and they still have their glaciers on them, yeah. then they are more and, able to praise And even God. in a smaller way, there's a lovely meadow near where I live where I walk the dog and people have started hanging lots of poly bags around the trees full of dog poo. Uh, you know, let's just be frank Sorry. about it. You know, what, what does that mean for me as I read these words as a wanderer out there that the, the, the world celebrates and speaks of God's glory? Well, maybe I should just grab those bags, however smelly and disgusting that is, and put them in a bin. So if the trees yeah. are going to clap their hands, Absolutely. they're going to find it harder to do <laughs> yeah, that if yeah. they've got poo bags on them. Yeah. So we're enabling... We're, we're, yeah. We're, we're enabling the trees to do what they were made to do. And, and for someone that, else who maybe isn't going to hear the words in the Bible... I think, oh, someone took away all that horrible stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and they may think, well, the world's a more beautiful place. And that brings us, I think, to another key thing, which is in these passages, which is that the world is good. So yeah. part of creation is 
appreciation that God makes the world and then God looks at the world and sees that it is good. Somehow the creation becomes more when it is seen and it is enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And if we're called to be like God, we're called to, to enjoy the goodness of creation. Fiona Stewart, Jen Robertson and Neil Glover in full flow there. The Cambridge thing is coming up now. It's uh, John Rutter's setting of All Things Bright and Beautiful. John Rutter's setting of Cecil Francis Alexander's hymn All Things Bright and Beautiful. It was sung there by the Cambridge singers. But now it's back to David. Ernie Ray talks to representatives of Muslim, Hindu and Christian conservation organisations about climate change and what our attitude should be. This is from his radio programme, Beyond Belief. Planet Earth is in dire trouble. If carbon emissions continue at their present level, by the end of this century, sea levels will have risen dramatically, the coral reef will have almost disappeared, and wheat production will have fallen by 16%. Scientists warn of disaster unless immediate action is taken. 
we need to draw upon every resource we can. So what role can religious communities play to avert climate change? The vast majority of the world's population hold to a faith tradition. Faith traditions appeal not only to science, but to deeply held beliefs and values. They can speak the language of hope instead of fear. So why have they not acted sooner? Why have their voices been so silent? With me are three people from different faith communities who've devoted large parts of their lives to promote awareness of the environment. Dr Husna Ahmed is Chief Executive Officer of Global One 2015, a Muslim international non-governmental organisation led by women. Gopal Patel is the director of the Bhumi Project, which works to mobilise the Hindu community on environmental issues. And Martin Palmer is the founder of the Alliance of Religions and Conservation. So, Husna, why should Muslims be concerned about climate change? Muslims should be concerned about climate change because of the fact that we've only got one planet, we've only got this world, and you know when, when, when you're thinking about the fact that in 11 years' time you'll have the climate catastrophe, according to the UN, we've got no time to think about them and us and being in silos. Everyone has to be active and, and tackle climate change. And why specifically, as a Hindu, should you be concerned with climate change, Gopal? The core tenet from Hinduism that leads its, lends itself to addressing climate change is the principle of ahimsa or non-violence. We know that climate change is going to bring untold suffering and hurt and harm to millions of people and other forms of life across the world. And so Hindus should be encouraged to lead lives of ahimsa, of non-violence, to minimise the suffering that we know that we're going to see in future generations. And Martin, what about a Christian? I think a Christian perspective goes perhaps, as I think all our traditions do, deeper than just climate change. And I think one of the great problems of a lot of Christian thinking, particularly out, coming out of the Industrial Revolution, out of the Reformation, was the whole of this was done just for human beings. Theologically, we've got to put ourselves back into being a part of creation, not apart from it. And theologically, that's actually about humility. And Gopal, is there any sort of parallel <coughs> concept within the Hindu scripture to the Bhagavad Gita, for instance? Yeah, it, it's interesting you mentioned the, the Bhagavad Gita. There's this strong principle, one of the first teachings in the Gita, where Krishna talks about the equality of life, samadarshana, that a learned person sees that there is no distinction between humans and animals and plant life. And I think that speaks very strongly to what Martin's talking about, which is that we have created this hierarchy that humans are on top and the natural world is there for our subjugation and um, you know, exploitation. And the Bhagavad Gita is very clearly stating that all life is sacred, all life has intrinsic value, and that learned people need to live and act with such a vision. And Husna, what does the Quran have to say? Basically, as Muslims, as humankind, the earth has been given to us on trust. It's not something that we can do as we will. You know, we, we're the stewards of this earth, so we should be taking care of the planet. So are, are we saying that, that humans can't be treated as superior beings, that we've got to acknowledge a, a, a form of equality, Martin? I think we're turning it around the other way to some extent. I think what, what troubles all of us and this is as true for the Taoists and the Buddhists and, and, and the Sikhs as, as anybody else, is that, that we think this is all here for us. And the faiths have kind of 
been behind some of that. We've not been the critic that we ought to be. So we have this terrible phrase, ecosystem deliverables. What that means is, how useful are the forests for absorbing our CO2? How useful are the oceans for providing us with uh, food? How useful are the animals for us to eat? And it's taken really the last sort of 20 or 30 years for the face to wake up to the fact that they have betrayed a sense that actually we are part of something, not separate. And that discussion was led by Ernie Ray. We have a children's song coming up next, uh, sung by children, sung by the choir of St Richard's and St Andrew's schools. It was recorded 25 years or more ago, so when I say it's sung by children, uh, I guess uh, many of them will have children of their own at school by now. Anyway, the song is God Who Made the Earth. Who made the earth? And that was the choir, the junior choir of St Richard's with St Andrew's Junior School Choir. Let's uh, get back to music, and this is Chris Tomlin and Indescribable.
The song title was Indescribable. But it's over to David to tell us what Malcolm Geit has for us this week. Malcolm Geit has written a series of sonnets based on sections of George Herbert's poem entitled Prayer. Today the heavens themselves declare the glory of the Lord in the Milky Way. The poem is followed by ethereal music from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Ballet. The Milky Way. It's always there. But when our lights are low or altogether out, we see it shine. Only when things are darkest here below do we discern its soft, pearlescent sheen gracefully traced across the midnight sky in whose light Herbert saw the path of prayer. Though pale and milky to the naked eye, the view from Hubble, far above the air, shows us a star field, rich with many colours, patterns of bright gold and blue and red, abundance of a hundred billion stars, whose centre lies in Sagittarius, darting their glory like the myriad of saints and angels who all pray for us. something for us to think about. But now it's Kristen Getty with a song written by her husband Keith along with Stuart Townend. The title is Creation Sings the Father's Song.
Getty and Creation Sings the Father's Song, a song written by Keith Getty, her husband, and Stuart Townend. But let's get back to David. Philippa Perry is a psychotherapist who's married to the artist Grayson Perry. Philippa is also an author, agony aunt, and broadcaster. Philippa talks to Michael Barclay about how she became interested in psychotherapy. What led you towards psychotherapy as a career? I don't think anyone's attracted to psychotherapy because they're all worked out and they're, and they're, they're completely sane. So I suppose I just read loads of psychology. I did psychology A-level at night school. I, I just couldn't stop reading about it. And after a while, I realised that I, I couldn't resist it any longer. And I started to train. In a way, you've given me a very good answer to my next question, which was uh, some people talk about psychotherapy as self-indulgence. Uh-huh. But you, what would you say to them? Well, you've said part of it by well, inquiring within, does it work? I think um, we can react to the world or we can reflect and then have a choice about how we are or how we respond to things in the world. And I think we can be kinder to others, perhaps, if we reflect rather than react. And psychotherapy helps us reflect. And sure, that's kinder to yourself and kinder to others. But as the cliche goes, unless you put on your own oxygen mask first, how can you help others with theirs? Uh, My husband talks about it as when he had psychotherapy, it was like going into a very messy garden shed and tidying it up so he could use the tools so much better. You've asked to hear the violinist Min Kim, whose life really fell apart after her Stradivarius was stolen in a station cafe in 2010. It was eventually recovered, but by that time it was the property of her insurance company and was sold at auction. So there isn't exactly a happy ending to that story. She's talked openly about the impact the experience has had on her mental health. What advice do you feel someone in that sort of position needs to come to terms with that kind of trauma? I wouldn't presume to give Min Kim any advice, but I suppose it's a bit like a bereavement. And when we have the bereavement, we not only lose the person or the violin, we lose a part of ourselves. So we are left with a big gaping hole. And if I have any advice, it is that have faith that hole will find ways to fill up again there will be another violin, there will be another lover, or there will be something else to take the place because nature abhorbs a vacuum and we do fill these very painful holes within us caused by bereavement. You got to know her when you were making a documentary about hands. I had the privilege of meeting her. I made a documentary for Radio 4. I was thinking about let's become more aware of body. So I really wanted to make a documentary about this. And rather than focus on the whole body, I focused on the hands. And I was so interested to see where the hands stop and and where the world starts. And it's so interesting to watch her 
with her violin because she becomes her violin, her violin becomes her. They are one. And it's such a beautiful thing to behold. It was so moving being in a small room watching her play. It was just so moving because the music seemed to just come out of her. And she was, it was, you know, when somebody shares a very vulnerable part of themselves with you and you feel really privileged, well, it felt like that only music. And it was beautiful. And. It will stay with me forever. So I really wanted a piece of music by her to remind me of that way we can extend ourselves. Well, we're going to hear the adagio from the Brahms Violin Concerto, and this is actually played on the instrument, this recording, before it was stolen, so it has a particular significance. She certainly made a beautiful sound on that strat. She does. She's like she's singing through it. Yes. One can understand what it must have meant when it went, as you say, being an extension almost of her yes. body. Min Kim was the soloist in the slow movement from the Violin Concerto by Brahms. Andrew Davis was conducting the Philharmonia Orchestra. And Michael Barclay was speaking there to Philippa Perry. Music. And we heard this one, or part of it anyway, uh, next week, at the end of last week's Heart and Soul. I thought it was worthwhile hearing the whole thing again. I hope you think so as well. It's Daniel O'Donnell and Footsteps. <laughs> Footsteps walking with me Footsteps I cannot see but every move I make and every step I take, I know they're there with me. They walk with me all the way, beside me day by day. Through good and bad, through happy and sad, those footsteps won't go away. I'll never walk in life alone. There'll always be someone there I know he won't let me down He's with me everywhere The special things in life I've done Have been through him and his love I've been blessed in so many ways Thanks to the Lord above Footsteps walking with me Footsteps I cannot see But every move I make And every step I take 
beside me day by day Through good and bad, through happy and sad Those footsteps won't go away I think that my life's been planned By the one who's guiding me When I'm led by the hand Of someone I can't see I'm not always sure where to go That's when I follow his lead I know that the pathway that he shows Will help me to succeed Footsteps walking with me Footsteps I cannot see But every move I make And every step I take I know they're there with me They walk with me all the way Beside me day by day Through good and bad Through happy and sad Those footsteps won't go a very cheery song simply called Footsteps but it's time to get back to hear from David again Larry Gentis and his wife Judy live in Kirk Michael and go to Pitlochry Baptist Church Larry and Judy now act out the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well You can't live without water so I'm off to the well here in Samaria Things can get really hot at this time of the year. You may ask, why do I go to fetch water at this hottest time of the day? (laughs) Well, I'm not very popular in this town. You see, well, men, let's just say they like me a lot. And I have a problem saying no if they talk to me in a certain way. I've always preferred the company of men, and I've been married several times. And of course, that's just not the done thing here. So I come to the well at a time when I know that the other women are not likely to be there and I can avoid unpleasantries. What's this? There's a man sitting there. That's unusual. Why, it's a Jew. You don't see that very often. They usually avoid us like the plague. Give me a drink. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. (laughs) Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? And he gave us this well to drink from and he drank from it himself, him, his sons and his cattle. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks... Of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Sir, give me of that water so I will not be thirsty and not have to come this way to draw water. All right, go. Call your husband and come here. Mm, 
I don't have a husband. Well, you've correctly said that I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and your people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming, and neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. I who speak to you (gasps) am he. First of all, I was stunned when he revealed that he knew my life without ever having met me. Then if that wasn't enough, when I mentioned the Messiah would reveal all things, he said, I am he. I was shocked, amazed, didn't really know what to do. I felt an urgency to tell others, so I left my water pot and went into the city. I did not even think about the fact that I wanted to avoid the other women. It didn't matter anymore. I knew he was speaking the truth. I felt an urgency that others must know this man. Unless he was the saviour sent from God, there was no way that he could have known what my past and present situation was. Hey, I'd never even seen him before in my life. What was then even more surprising was that when I told the townspeople the story, they actually believed me. That was a first. What was more, they affirmed what I believed. This was Jesus, the Messiah. Before that happened, nobody would ever have believed a woman like me. Jesus has left our city now, but he stayed with us for two days and taught us the ways of his father. My life has changed completely since he came. I'm not even the same person, and it's not just me. The entire city is different. People are praying and changing the way they do things. It's as though they're not even the same people that they once were. Now I don't think he's only his father. He's ours as well. He's certainly mine. How about you? From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. John chapter 4. Larry and Judy Gentis. And you can read the story in the Bible, St. John's Gospel, chapter 4. That's where you'll find it. And that's us once again. Thank you for listening. Our thanks too to Larry and Judy Gentis there, uh, Michael Barclay, Philippa Perry, Malcolm Guide, Ernie Ray, Neil Glover and friends, all for their contributions this morning. Meantime, as usual, David Wilkie and I, I'm Howard Simpson, will wish you a good day, a good week and God's blessing. And we leave you with Cathy Burton and God, I look to you.
Forever.